0: Welcome to the Oofsa podcast. For today's episode, producer Christian Diaz sat down with Dr. Christine Evans to talk about the Vancouver International Film Festival, shifts in film viewership and audiences, and a whole lot more. We hope you enjoy the conversation. So thank you so much for being here at the Oofsa podcast. Um, if you don't mind, just introduce yourself to everyone who's listening to us, but I'm pretty sure they know who you are because most of our listeners are your students. <laughs>
1: Okay, uh, hello to everyone out there in radio land. Um, My name is Dr. Christine Evans. I'm a lecturer here at UBC in film studies. And I teach, uh, well, everything. Um, So if you're listening to this, you've probably taken one of my classes. Should I list them? Intro to film studies, Canadian cinema, Hollywood cinema, film theory, European cinema, a whole bunch of 400 level courses that change from year to year, authorship, some grad classes, and I supervise directed readings as well. So hello, everyone. Thanks for listening.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. Um, So personally, I've had Christine for, what was it? Is it Fist 100? European cinema, film theory, and I think that's it. Happy
1: th- memories, yes. Yeah, <laughs> all of them.
0: Um, so it's great that you're here because we wanted to talk about audiences in general and audiences at UBC, mm-hmm. and I think that you're sort of like the gatekeeper of film studies
1: mm-hmm.
0: because of Fist 100. Oh, I love, you see I all love these that people. idea.
1: I think <laughs> I'm just gonna I'm gonna put that on my CV. Just be like gatekeeper.
0: Because <laughs> how long have you been doing that class for?
1: one, I started teaching FIST 100 in 2012 was the first time that oh, I taught it. So I've been doing it for, what is that, bad math, seven years? Maybe? Uh, also
0: in the arts, I, I can't do math.
1: Yeah, okay, so it's a long, 20. a long time. Five years. Yeah.
0: Yes? Okay. Five?
1: Perfect. Oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> all right. Um, still a long time, that's when I started teaching FIST 100. Um,
0: and, yeah. Uh, so before we get into all these courses, because I do want to talk about them, mm-hmm. Uh, why don't you tell us what else do you do in your time? Because I know you are an author now, and Ooh. or maybe you've been one um, uh, since the beginning of time.
1: It's funny. Jessica sent me an email asking if I could send her a bio that was sort of tailored in a particular way to some people for the career night that's coming up. Mm-hmm. And I just basically sent her the exact same bio that's on my faculty page. I am like I am literally what is on my bio at the faculty page there is like there's no secret content to me really Um, (laughs) I'm kind of exactly like the person that you know here all that I do when I say that all that I do is think about film theory I'm not lying like I go home (laughs) and I think about it um, and I talk to my friends about it and then I go to sleep um, and dream about it and dream about it obviously Um, but (laughs) some, some of my other projects that I'm working on right now is I've been I've spent the last few years working on a project on the externality of thought in cinema. So the fact that cinema can actually show us people's thoughts as opposed to, you know, just describing them or something. We can have things like In a Beautiful Mind, sequences where we see, you know, people's thoughts kind of coming into fruition and sort of flashing across the screen. So cinema's unique ability to kind of impart that. So I've been working on that for the past few years. Um, I've currently got a book contract to write a book on Slavoj Žižek in cinema. Um, Yeah, Um, which I'm very excited about because it's part of a larger book series about how cinema inspires famous thinkers Um, so while my doctoral dissertation was about Zizek and cinema, it was mostly, I'm not going to lie, it was mostly just about Zizek Um, (laughs) and I never really got a chance to write the project that I wanted to write on Zizek and cinema because I was too busy obsessed with Zizek's methodology and the way that he thinks and stuff so I just kind of was like Zizek, Zizek, also cinema Um, but this book is forcing me to put cinema front and center so basically the argument of the book is that uh, uh Žižek's thought is inherently cinematic, like it sort of relies uh, on cinema and kind of like Bazenian notions of cinema, of subjectivity and objectivity, uh, in in order for his logic to function. Uh, I can't really speak any more about it at this point, not because I'm contractually unable to, Mm. but mostly
0: because I just don't, I have nothing nothing more to say. Uh, But you can say you're contractually, because that sounds... That sounds really sexy.
1: I'm contractually obligated by my publisher to not speak any (laughs) more about this project. I'm not. (laughs) <laughs> um, but I'm really looking forward to doing that because it's letting me bring all of the stuff that I love about film theory into concert with Zizek um, who is, again, someone that I've been working on since I did my undergrad um, so I thought that I'd left him behind but the publisher approached me and was like write this book, you're a Zizek expert and I was like, okay, I'm going back for one more job one more job um, uh, so that's something I'm working on and after that uh, I've got sort of plans to work on a project about um uh, about Andre Bazin and cinema and knowledge so that whole idea that he puts forward of uh, in, in one of his essays he talks about cinema and love um, and using that idea of love as a springboard to talk about like the way that cinema uh, manipulates knowledge through this sort of idea of love. I don't know where that's going to go yet but I know that <laughs> I want to write about Bazin um, because he's the best. Read Andre Bazin. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Please>. yeah.
0: <laughs> On As a side note have you seen that uh, you've probably seen the a series of videos from Criterion on YouTube where they take people into a closet filled with DVDs. And there's one with Zizek. Zizek, And I can't remember his... his, uh, what he chose, but... Uh, I think he chose In the Mood for Love, but I can remember. Do you remember? Have you I, seen it?
1: I, I, I have seen it. I kind of don't remember what he chose either. If he chose In the Mood for Love, it makes sense because it's like such a beautiful and incredible film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tried to show it to a first-year class once for a week on cinematography and it crashed and burned. Oh, they were like, really? It was so boring. And I was mm-hmm. like, you're monsters. You're monsters if you don't love this movie. I yeah, kids um, these days. Right. Uh, um, but, uh, what else is there to say, but there's almost literally nothing else to say about me.
0: Um, well, hopefully <laughs> people want to know more about your career and what you're going to do, they're going to come to career night. Mm-hmm. At, as side know, we don't know if this episode is going to come after or oh, before, okay. but if you went to career night, <laughs> thank you for doing <laughs> that. And you're going to learn more about Christine then, or you did. Um, so we spoke a little bit about UBC, but I want to speak about uh, Vancouver. And people mm-hmm. talk a lot about Vancouver in this production aspect of film, and mm-hmm. they all know that everyone comes and film here. Mm-hmm. But of course, there's a lot of uh, film knowledge that that happens in, and I think that's also reflected in in the efforts that the city does or private institutions what they do to keep the conversation of film alive, mm-hmm. which includes the Vancouver Film Festival. Absolutely. How many times have you been? I don't. I don't even know if you're. Are you from Vancouver? No, I'm not from Vancouver. I'm from
1: Toronto. That's um, oh. where I'm originally from. Um, and I moved from. here to do my masters from 2004 to 2006, um, and then I moved away to do my PhD, and then I came back in 2012. So I'm from Toronto originally, but I've lived here for long enough now that I'm like, meh. Am I Vancouver? I mean, I'm no. I'm not a Vancouverite because I do not look at people when I walk down the street. I keep my eyes on the sidewalk where they belong, <laughs> um, because yeah. Vancouver Vancouverites love to look at one another. Yes. Um, Toront- Torontonians are just like, nope, eyes to the ground, get where you're going. Um, VIF.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the Vancouver Film Festival, mm-hmm. I'm guessing you've been yes. plenty of times, mm-hmm. m- maybe every single year that you've been here. Um, did you go this year?
1: Yes, yeah, I, d- I went this year. This was actually my this was my biggest VIF year, so I, I spent a lot of
0: time at VIF this year. So. How many films did you watch?
1: I know that it's probably not going to sound a lot to big Viv fans. Um, it's a lot for someone who has back problems, though. So um, I think I saw seven or eight
0: films. That's, that's more. Uh, I saw three oh, and I was working okay. at Viv, so that was the the reason why, I guess. Mm-hmm. But what did you think about the films this year?
1: Uh, it was a really interesting crop of films. I mean, I obviously I didn't get a chance to see all of them. I saw... Uh, uh, I thought that they brought in some 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 great films, um, and I, I really enjoy the emphasis at, in VIF on kind of local and BC-based filmmaking, unlike someplace like TIFF that is obviously trying to appeal way more to an international audience or to that those aspects of stardom to get people in through the doors if that even matters to TIFF I don't know if they really care about getting people in through the doors Um, it's more of like a photographic opportunity at this point I think Mm -hmm. Um, but the films that show up at VIF I think are again there's a really nice mix again of emphasis on local filmmaking BC filmmaking indigenous filmmaking um, but also you know stuff that you kind of want to see just a little bit earlier than everyone else just so that you have the cultural cachet of saying that you saw it at a film festival and I certainly did that this year I saw The Square and I saw Killing of a Sacred Deer all films that are in the cinema right now that I could have just waited to see but um, I figured you know when, there, when there's a festival on like you kind of want to participate in that spirit of, of of people sitting around all watching a film together in a festival crowd these are festival films they're kind of made for film festivals so there's something doubly enjoying about enjoying enjoyable about seeing them in a crowd full of festival goers rather than just going to Scotia bank a few weeks later um, and sitting there with people who are like ha huh? what um,
0: yeah <laughs> so yeah well that's interesting because I also I went to the killing of a sacred deer mm-hmm. and I know that Diraj also went one of our producers Mm -hmm. and it was interesting to me because I was sitting there and it was packed it was like all the rows that I could see in front of me they were completely taken Mm -hmm. and I just try to understand were people like really big fans of dog tooth that were here (laughs) or was the lobster a bigger hit, or was it Nicole Mm -hmm. Kidman so I didn't I didn't know and then there people were just like I could hear people laughing nervously without giving much away of the film but Mm -hmm. the film is just not It's just not one of those mainstream films I think people would be, like, Mm -hmm. so intrigued to watch. So what was your take on it without (laughs) spoilers?
1: I mean, speaking of the audience, I think that it's... Vancouver gets such a bad rap for people not wanting to participate in arts and culture that everyone just kind of stays inside because it's always raining or people are, like, kind of too unfriendly to participate in artistic communities. But anyone who's ever been to the festival will know that that's... Not the case, certainly at least not all of the time. Um, and yeah, the attendance at the festival is always so impressive and amazing that you can pack something like that, the center, like every single seat in there can be filled um, with Vancouverites who are just, again, coming to watch a film that they can see in a theater later. Um, so it's nice that, again, the people kind of come out for that spirit of community uh, in the festival. In terms of what I thought about Killing the Sacred Deer, I really enjoyed it. I saw it, I saw the later show because I know, that they, don't, they only played twice, I think. Yes. Um, but I saw the show that I saw it with. People were really raucous. They were so uh, willing to laugh. Um, they were laughing at like literally everything. And I feel mm-hmm. like that is kind of really necessary to for, to enjoy Yorgos Landthomas's films um, when you watch them by yourself. I mean, uh, unless you're really jolly uh, or unless you're just a jerk, um, you're not going to laugh at everything. But there's something about being in a room full of people who enjoy how... um Unconventional and kind of sacrilegious, uh, he is, um, and are prepared to kind of giggle at everything that makes it much more infectious. So, as I was watching it, I was thinking, if I were watching this at home, I, I would, I would, I would enjoy it, but I probably would only have laughed like three or four times. So, because everyone was just getting high off one another's laughter in that room, um, it just made it so infectious and so much more enjoyable as an experience. So, I'm really glad that I saw it at the festival and not, for example, um, just in a regular theatrical release. And I'm certainly glad that I didn't wait for it to be released on Netflix, which is my typical... Usually I'm like, eh, I'll just wait for it to come out on Netflix. Um, So I'm glad that I didn't do that because i would just
0: been sitting at home, eating a sandwich, not laughing much. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is how I feel like people watch The Lobster. I think mm -hmm. that it... Got gained this momentum when it got on Netflix. Yeah. Um, how was your experience with The Square? Because I know that that one, out of all the films, I think came with more of a leverage because of Cannes.
1: Because of yeah, the other Pondor. Um, again, I was. I, I got really good crowds for all of the films that I was that I watched. So I know that there was. A, I think again, I, I got an earlier showing of The Square that then fed directly into. Uh, Uh, Right after it was a screening of Hanukkah's Happy End. Um, So I went right from the square to Happy End with this crowd of people who, in the square, again, were like laughing uproariously at everything. Um, And then we all went into Happy End, and you you could hear that the people who were like laughing uproariously eventually sort of died down because they were like, all right, it's Hanukkah. Like, (laughs) you're not going to get very many laughs. Uh, Although the final shot in Happy End is legitimately one of the funniest things I've ever seen, um, which is nice to. in in a Hanukkah film to see uh, that kind of humor at the end. I actually really enjoyed this year, and in most of the films that I saw, there was a real emphasis on kind of sticking it to art cinema aesthetics and that general spirit of art cinema humorlessness. So between The Square and Killing of a Sacred Deer and even a little bit Happy End, there was a sense of films laughing at the idea of the pleasures that we get from art cinema. Um, the Square obviously dealt with this and its themes about sort of art and like what constitutes art and isn't art for jerks, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but Killing of the Sacred Deer was, <laughs> Killing of a Sacred Deer was kind of like a, a send up and mockery of like Haneke style ethics, right? That idea of like, yep. you have to choose. There were so many like little, uh, little nods to Haneke's films, like mm-hmm. funny games. Um, exactly.
0: That's exactly what I thought when I saw it. Yeah.
1: Yeah and it's it's nice because I mean it's not mean spirited um it it certainly didn't strike me as like making like making fun in a cruel way but just sort of poking at the idea of what we expect at a film festival um and the way that we expect to engage with films I've never been to a festival where people laughed so much or at least I mean maybe I just picked all the right films this year um but even like the highfalutin art films this year the ones that sort of stuck out stuck out as the art films that you're supposed to see um still had this sense of like great humor um and pleasure and enjoyment at their forefront and seemed to be calling out films that were way too kind of dark and took themselves too seriously as art cinema Um,
0: yeah that's that's very interesting and it's it's true from what i've seen because i also watched the square and it seems to be this big commentary on on art and they these uh filmmakers knew they knew their audiences and that's what I got from The Lobster and the Killing of a Secret Deer. This is the person who's like, this is what I'm going to do. And if you mm-hmm. don't like it, oh, well.
1: Yeah. No, and it's, I mean, it, I, I screened Dogtooth to uh, a class that I taught one year on, like, cinema's bad parents. Um, and there were, like, not a single laugh in the room. Um, and then people reported watching Dogtooth again um, at home with their friends and laughing uproariously. So... Yorgos Lanthimos has, he has such an interesting relationship with humor. It's, it depends so much on the mood that you're in, the spirit of the crowd that you're watching the films with, um, and, uh, kind of look what you're looking to get out of it. Like if you want a serious art film, I feel with a lot of his films, you'll get what you're looking for, but you can just as easily kind of look at them from a different perspective and see something ridiculous, um, mm-hmm. which is a lot more fun, um, but not more right than seeing just a serious art film.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I remember watching The Lobster at Viv last year and I saw it with a completely sold-out theatre mm-hmm. and it was sort of, we couldn't stop watching. Uh, you, you just wanted to see where the story went, mm-hmm. but then a friend of mine watched it on Netflix many months ago and she stopped it because she's like, oh, well, I have to do something else, so she fell asleep or something. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like what you're talking about, about having an audience... Uh, did you get to watch Loving Vincent this year? No, I didn't. Uh, I saw that you said that you wanted to talk about it. I saw.
1: <laughs> I saw it in. I saw previews for it, and I saw it obviously in the the little teaser that they played before every th- film. They had sort of. A, right. They had a few scenes from it.
0: But yeah, I haven't seen it. No, I, oh. I and I didn't want people to be like, "Oh, we have to watch it for the episode." Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I wanted to talk about that film in particular is uh, the audience aspect of it, and it's a very interesting, but also. A particular topic about the story of Vincent Van Gogh, and even though Vincent Van Gogh as as an artist is well known, I would say that it's not the amount of the same amount of people who have actually seen a Van Gogh in in real life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, what do you think that says about audiences? Uh, in Vancouver specifically or people who go to VIF who have this relationship to his art Mm -hmm. that it's so, that it seems to be familiar or, because from what I've under, what I understand the film is good and the premise is good and it's a good film, but what about the story and its context in this city and in this particular, I want to say, economic class too? How is that connected to... Okay, so,
1: uh-huh. that, no, that's a fair question. I mean, I don't I don't want to speak too much at length about it because I haven't seen the film, so uh-huh. I'm just kind of spitballing here um, and making guesses based on what I've seen and what I can sort of guess at. But, I mean, it also seems, it seems like there are two types of festival films, that there are sort of like the hanukkah ask like asking big ethical questions that ends in a terrible way that makes you consider your desire and like the things that you wanted the film to do, how terrible for you as a spectator, that sort of punishing kind of Of art cinema or festival cinema, and then the kind of festival cinema that is just largely prestige like that sense of this is a good film, this is an important film, Uh, this is a formally innovative film, this is something that you should, if you are a cultured person, as you say, of a particular class, if you consider yourself to be. Uh, someone who has any interest in cinema at all you should probably see this art object and I think, again, just based on the way that the previews are kind of constructed and how they sort of seem to be speaking to their audience, it seems that Vincent is pitched to be kind of the latter type of film, that sort of prestige festival film Um, uh, I think that the amount of work that went into sort of its form must have been astronomical, I can't imagine uh, how much work went into that film, Um, and it looks I mean, based, again, based on what limited amount of it I've seen in previews, it looks spectacular. It looks absolutely gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Um... uh but yeah, I think that it's certainly people like biopics, people like biopics about artists, right? There's a certain safety in, in the subject matter. I think of, you know, you get to watch a film that, uh, humanizes an artist who's known for his madness. Um, and there's a feel good aspect to that too, for, for a sophisticated, I'm putting this in finger quotes because of course you cannot see this is a podcast, um, (laughs) but for sophisticated festival goers, there's a certain, uh, pleasure, uh, in, uh, being someone who, or in watching a film that rescues, uh, a controversial but beautiful figure. Um, so I think that really it, it, I mean, it, there, there, I think there's a reason why it won the People's Choice Award. I feel like it kind of hit all of the ticky boxes, um, that, that the people tend to like when they watch festival films. Again, there's that feel good aspect of, uh, uh, this was an artist who's mad. Uh, we all talk about him cutting off his ear, but oh, look, this film has like really made him so human and beautiful, and it's mm-hmm. shown us his true soul. Um, it looks spectacular. A great deal of work went into it. People love it, obviously, and as they should when films look wonderful. Um, and yeah, there's that sort of... Uh, there's the fact that it's a, a, an art or an, an an arty film that's done artfully and about art and an artist. Um, so, again, it's it's taking a lot of those boxes of pleasure or and of expectation that people have when they go to a film festival. There's also, I mean, what could that film do? Having not seen it, I feel kind of bad. I'm sort of judging it a little bit here. But, like, what could that film do? to disappoint you, really. Um, Again, it's going to tell you a story that you kind of already know. Uh, It's going to do it in an absolutely visually astonishing way. Um, You're not... I, I can't really imagine anyone walking out of that movie and being like, what, garbage. Because even if you didn't like the story, even if you found it maudlin or whatever, you would still be like, thrilled by the visuals. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does make sense. Um, not my personal vote for the People's Choice Award, which was Western, um, and the best film that I saw at VIF and the best film that I have seen this year, easily. Really? Yes. Uh, did you see that one? No. Um, uh, it's a film by Valeska Grisbach, um, <laughs> who, uh, <laughs> uh, it's the, uh, she is a German uh, filmmaker. It's produced by the woman who directed Tony Erdman, so it's part of like that kind of pedigree. Although it is not even remotely funny, um, and its title kind of gives away what it is. Uh, it's a, a story about some German construction workers who are hired to build uh, kind of a, a dam or something or a water treatment plant in Bulgaria, um, and who don't speak the same language and who end up having to sort of communicate with the Bulgarian natives. Um, I haven't explained what this has to do with the title yet, but it's it's obviously playing off of so many generic themes that play out in Hollywood Western films, in the Mm -hmm. genre of the Western. Um, And uh, it does it so brilliantly and so beautifully. Uh, It kind of looks and feels a little bit like a Claire Denis film, um, but it's... uh,
0: yeah, but it's not so it's it's not even
1: remotely a Western. It doesn't I mean, well, it doesn't look like one, but it plays off of all kinds of generic tropes of the Western. so the idea of someone going native, for example, and what that means um, of not sharing a language of going into sort of a wilderness and trying to claim it as one's own. So it uses these themes that we're so familiar with in Hollywood, but it puts them in this kind of German Bulgarian context um in this really humanist and beautiful way. um I was I was, made me speechless like I absolutely loved it um, I loved every single second of it um, and yeah it was what I tore a five, a four five. For the <laughs> Choice Award. but I'm not I'm not really surprised um, that it did not win the People's Choice Award if I mean again it's a very slow film I brought up Claire Denis for a reason right it's uh, it was very ambiguous um, tons of like long takes and silences usually those things annoy me I know that we're, we pretend that we're supposed to like those as film studies people usually they they draw out draw in my patience a little bit but everything just sort of worked so That's perfectly. Classic. in this
0: film yeah <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't tell anyone uh, well on that topic then mm-hmm. uh we can talk maybe about your specific audiences because your cl- uh, your students and mm-hmm. and from from your classes i can see how there's a big scope for fist 100 and i know so mm-hmm. and there's people who are coming from different backgrounds and then you sort of go into the smaller and smaller groups that are that are more into film studies or want to um, major in it. So how is that difference? Because from what I what I hear, you had a good um, audience experience in Viv, mm-hmm. which w- wasn't my case in some films. Some films that were really late and people just wanted you to know that they were doing the extra effort to be there at, at 9 p.m. Mm-hmm. until 11. Mm-hmm. So they were stretching out and whatnot. Um, but I feel like in class, when we watch a film, we're it was different for me because I know I remember meet me in St. Louis and people were just like happy to be there. <laughs> that's nice. Yeah. Cause it's so good. But now for other classes that are very specific, people are like, I got to watch this film and I have to watch it, but it's not one of those broad themes that are going to bring me happiness. It's just a very specific thing. So maybe you can tell us about those differences.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting that you should bring up your experience with the VIF, with the VIF audience this year. Cause that's my typical experience with festival audiences. Um, Um, the the thing that annoys me most about festival audiences is what I call, like, the festival dude laugh. Like, there's always one guy in the film festival audience who laughs earlier at, at the joke than everyone else does as this sort of like it's like this territorial kind of peeing on the film to mark him as the one who understands its logic better than anyone in the room and it's a really specific laugh it's a guffaw it lasts for a few seconds like ha 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 and it's like and every time I hear it I'm like where are you where are you I want to find He was you. sitting
0: behind me uh, at the killing of a sacred deer that's, yeah. that's where he was.
1: He's often, he's often behind you he's often right <laughs> behind you um, and yeah, that's my, that is my typical experience of festival audiences where I'm just like, oh, my God, you horrible people. Like, go home. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or behave yourselves. Or, like, again, it's like we're here to watch a film. We're here for this kind of communal experience, not to weirdly prove to one another how smart we are. Like, again, our focus should be on the film. Look at that big beam of light that's projected up there. Like, let's not make this into a, a kind of... The box social, right? Where we're all kind of trying to figure one another out. That's there's, ugh, that causes so much anxiety in me. Anyway, um, but when it comes to the difference between those types of audiences and uh, just sort of Scotiabank style audiences versus uh, the audience or the, the student audiences. Um, it's interesting, to, it's interesting to me what I demand of my students and how I yell at them um, based on what I perceive to be proper cinema etiquette. Um, so I, I, w- I went to a screening of Thor Ragnarok the other day, which was risable. Um, I'm not going to talk about that. Um, but in any event, I was so weirded out by how much everyone was on their cell phones, how much everyone was talking. Uh how no one really seemed to be paying attention to the film. I mean, possibly because, for for obvious reasons, it might have just been the film's fault. But, I I mean, I was like, I'm not on my phone. Like, I'd like to be checking my email right now, actually. uh, But I'm not going to do it because it's only two hours long. I mean, it's still too long. But anyway, it was just, it was so (laughs) strange to me because I use cinema audiences as the barometer against which I measure my students and or, or or the barometer of expectation that I have for my students, at least. So I will always tell them in first year, you know, we treat these, or, you know, we we are scholars when we engage with these films. That means that we don't do certain things. Um, if you were in a cinema and if someone pulled their phone out next to you, you'd be furious because the beam of light would disrupt the beam of light coming from the projector. Um, and that would just, dis- you know, that would disturb your, your engagement with the film, your being sutured into it, uh, and uh, uh, it's weird to me though that when when I go to the cinema, I'm like, oh right, these law these rules don't apply anymore. Like anything goes in kind of the com- in commercial cinemas. People are on their phones all the time. They're talking all the time. Um, so I feel like I need to remove that particular yardstick from my now. Make sure that you behave uh, expectations uh, in my in my classes because. Uh, as I was watching Thor Ragnarok I was like my students would never do this like none of my students would dare um ever behave in this way in this screening of this of this film they would just sit there and take it because that's what you do um in any event uh it's it's interesting to me what uh, sort of watching students struggle with being audience members in an academic context because it's a the expectations are different, right? Often students in first year will ask, well, are we allowed to take notes? Um, am I allowed to open my laptop to, t- laptop to take some notes if I want? I'm like, no. Um, am I allowed to bring a lighted pen? No. Um, you just have to sit there in the dark and squint and hope that, you know, your 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 eyes will hold out so that you can take notes properly, just like the Cahie Cinema guys used to do. Um, so, I, yeah, I feel... <laughs> This I'm gonna get all like nostalgic and maudlin here, but like I don't know. I feel like I'm I, I feel like I'm sort of asking my students to be part of a cinema going culture that they've never really experienced in their everyday lives, unless they happen to be great attendees of the Cinematheque. Um, and usually, first year students, when I ask. Anyone been to the cinema? Tech. one person will put their hand up. Hopefully more go. Um, but uh, cinema-going culture has changed so much. So uh, a part of me feels like I should be less of a jerk um, initially when students don't necessarily conform to what I consider to be proper scholastic protocol for film viewing. Um, uh, and I, I don't know the differences between classes are, are obviously size, uh, affects a lot of things. So a first year class with a lot of students occupy, you know, students at least occupying every row in the Royal Bank cinema, um, as you say, like things will be more infectious, right? If 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 one particular group of students is like a little bit rowdy, or if they're laughing at all the jokes, the other students will tend to respond in kind. Um, if one little group or one little clique of students is, re- is like really restless and shuffling around a lot and whispering, other students will do that as well. Um, so it's kind of interesting to observe them sociologically. I mean, <laughs> one of my, one of my, problems is that i often give so many rules for my students that they have to adhere to while they watch screenings that sometimes i have to be like you can laugh at jokes like you don't you don't just have to sit there solemnly um you don't have to be completely comatose um, but it, it's just interesting sort of trying to make rules that teach students how to view films in public with one another which is a weird thing to ask of people anyway um, how to watch those films in a scholastic setting in a way that is appropriate to the art object of the film, um, while at the same time retaining their humanity and still being themselves and still, you know, uh, enjoying the film the way that they might if they were seeing it in a more casual setting at home, on Netflix, at, a, you know, at the Scotia Bank with their friends. Does that make sense?
0: <laughs> yeah. no, it does. And I... I I keep thinking about it because I remember we were in a class in European cinema and it was one of the films that I've seen many times, so I just watched everyone else. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like they weren't trying to like make mental notes about the film because mm-hmm. this, is, oh, this is a film that I have to make a presentation on or whatever. They were sort of like getting themselves involved in the film, mm-hmm. especially when it's melodrama and it's like take me away with all the tears. Yes. So it's sort of <laughs> so it was it was fun to watch because people I guess who are in film studies and take these courses are sort of very I'm going to treat this as what it is, which is a piece of art that I have to mm-hmm. uh, deconstruct. And yeah. so but I find value in just being immersed into the um into the film and, and sort of understanding it that way because at least that's how I've been uh, with films but I, I understand where people come and say well if I go to Cineplex to watch a film I'm not as involved uh, with the film mm-hmm. um
1: well, and that's where I think, I mean, not to, not to be too film theory-ish, but that's where, like, the concept of Go suture ahead. comes in, right? Where, like, suture is also about just sort of being polite to your fellow audience members, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if a film, by its very nature, gets its hooks into you, ensnares you into its logic, um, makes you pay attention to it, then it just seems kind of rude to do anything that might take anyone else's attention away from the film. If you don't want to pay attention to it, fine, right? That's That's your prerogative. But there are other people in the room who have been successfully sutured by the film, who have been ensnared by it and who don't want that bond broken, um, which is why I'm always like, go outside. Go outside Mm -hmm. if you want to use your phone. Go outside if you want to talk to someone. like I don't care as long as you don't disturb the people in the room who have that sort of bond with the film. It's interesting, though, when you were talking about, again, that idea of like melodrama and people's defenses or their academic defenses dropping. Um, as I'm getting older, I'm, <laughs> I'm getting more and more interested in kind of showing films to students that will produce effective responses in them. So uh, just now, I just came from uh, my Fist 100 class where I decided to screen The Duke for the Horror Film Week. Um, and if you've taken Fist 100 with, with me in the past like three or four years, the film has always been cat people, Jacques Turner's Cat People for the Horror Week. Um, Cat People is an incredible film, but it's not particularly scary. So after going up there and talking about the shape of fear to students, it seemed a bit unfair to show students a film that I knew wouldn't really frighten them, um, even though they might be able to point out all of Robin Wood's little uh, ticky points um, in uh, in what makes a horror film. Um, So when I chose The Babadook, I was like, I want to choose a film that works with the Robin Wood article, but that might also actually legitimately frighten some students um (laughs) and the same thing with uh the european cinema class where i was like i want to I want to choose films that might make people cry. Like, what what would it be like to make a bunch of people, especially when once they've hit their third year and, or their fourth year, um, and they're much more sort of happily ensconced, ensconced in their academic identity and their ability to sort of sit back and be objective and, you know, take all films seriously without having the, their feelings distract them. What happens when you show that group of people Dancer in the Dark and they all ugly cry at the end? Um, uh, it's... Uh, it's, it's interesting, and I think it's nice. I think it's nice when people are still able to respond in the affective way that the film wants you to respond or in the way that it's engineered you
0: to respond. Mm-hmm. Um, and to sort of uh, finish this topic on on audiences, what do you think it's going to happen with, considering Suture and the Cinematic Apparatus, what do you mm-hmm. think it's going to happen with the, uh, the culture of going to a uh, movie theater with Netflix and whatnot? And... Also, with a very specific, having a plan to watch movies. So we go to a film festival for art films or films that are maybe are not going to, we're going to watch them before everyone else. Or mm-hmm. we just go to watch a film because it's a social interaction or we go to watch films for class. Mm-hmm. But if we want to watch a films, because we want to, we just stay home. Mm-hmm. So what do you think is going to happen or... or
1: I mean, in terms of the apparatus, I'm just thinking about your point, is the apparatus dead?
0: Or, um, <laughs> a lie. Or, oh, is it a lie? Sorry. Um, <laughs> it's,
1: not. it's not. It's No, it's not. It's not. Uh, um, uh, the point of apparatus theory is that they're all equally apparatuses, and one is not necessarily better than the other one for, for apparatus theorists. Um, the point is that they all just engage our desire in different ways. So, you know, my watching a film on my phone in bed is really snuggly and nice and fun in its own way Um, and even though I may not necessarily be sutured into it in the sort of serious cinema techy kind of way that uh, that the theatre experience will give me that doesn't mean that uh, the apparatus and the technology isn't impinging on my on my viewing so there's always something to say about our engagement with the apparatus each different form or condition of film viewing. Uh, is going to engage us in a different way and again there's always something to say about it so it's not a lie and it's never going to die it might update and uh, it might change and our attitudes towards it might change I still think that it's really interesting again I don't uh, I said I wouldn't talk about Thor Ragnarok but here I go while I was watching Thor I was thinking like why aren't I just playing a video game like this is so stupid like I could be at home playing Assassin's Creed which gives me all of the same pleasures slow-mo beautiful visuals all of that stuff only I could actually be controlling it like why am i just watching it play out on this screen Um, and then i got kind of warmer and fuzzier feelings about the film i was like isn't it beautiful that like even in this age where we keep talking about all these new forms of media forget cinema cinema's dead now we have netflix now we have television now we have video games now we have virtual reality which again they keep promising us but i mean where is it really Um, Like, cinema's dead, cinema's over, but we're all still going to the cinema, we're all still watching these activities play out, this spectacle play out, even though we have all kinds of different ways that we can engage with it, or do it at home, uh, or, again, get somehow more involved by playing video games and the idea of cinematics, Um, we're all still going to the cinema. which I think is really lovely um, and proof of cinema's enduring appeal. There's also a trend right now kind of in scholarship um, because media studies is the new thing. Cinema studies, they argue, is dead. Media studies is the way forward. We need to think about sort of the uh the intersection of all media forms with cinema or only, only being part of them so you know isn't cinema just like video games in this respect and isn't cinema just like television and isn't television just like video games in these res- respects which is I mean, I suppose those are fair questions to ask. But what I think is so amazing about cinema is that cinema is great because it's not like any other media. It's it's great because it's different, um, and it's always been different, and it will always it will it, it will never be like a video game. Cinema will never be a video game. So I feel almost as if people are asking the wrong questions. <laughs> like, how can we make cinema more like video games? How can we make cinema more interactive? How can we let people have more choice when it comes to cinema? No, cinema doesn't do that. It never will do that. It's not meant to to do that, that's not sort of the desire and the pleasure that it provides Um, so I think that now, weirdly more than ever in this age of media studies and all this interest in media, which is great but people who are interested in cinema, I feel, really should assert the importance of cinema in the the larger face of all of this media as opposed to just being like, oh yeah, of course isn't cinema just like all these other media forms? Because it's not sorry, that was a bizarre rant media studies is great, it is great Uh, (laughs) but film studies is is also great.
0: No, um, thank you so much for your input on all these topics, and hopefully, we're going to be able to talk about them even further in other episodes. Um, so, I want to thank you for being here and. Your song is going to play us out, so if you want to let people know why you chose it and which one is it, you, you don't have to actually play it.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> <No one. laughs> I was like, oh, I'm just, I'll, I'll open up YouTube here. Um, okay, so Christian asked me to pick a song to close out this episode, a song that, how did you describe it?
0: Uh, a song that it's related to film. So any song that you think you can think of, soundtrack or not. So you chose... That you said
1: everyone should hear. That, that everyone,
0: everyone should hear.
1: Yeah. Um, everyone. And there, I have so many of them. It took me like an hour to respond to Christian because mm-hmm. I was like, which is the best one? But I decided to ultimately just go with the first one that popped into my head, which is I Told Every Little Star from David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. Because it's so beautiful and sweet and creepy all at the same time. And it makes that film. So thank you for listening to me. <laughs> Uh, That's right.
0: Thank you for <laughs> thank you for being here, Christine. and please enjoy every little star. Thank you very much. Bye. bye bye Today's episode was produced by Christian Diaz, Dirge Warren, and Michael Stringer. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And follow USA on Facebook and Instagram for more updates and live events. Thanks for listening.